Welcome to This Week in Sustainability on the SustainableCentury.net. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Is anyone getting down about this awful pandemic? Uh, I'm sorry, that was a rhetorical question, but I have to tell you, when I go outside to the streets these days, it makes me sad. But I don't want to get into that now. No, rather, I think I'd like to talk about something I find odd with this pandemic. Something that surprised me a bit, and maybe some others too. I thought things would change faster, particularly the economy. Uh, it seems as though that while many of us are on the edge, most are still hanging on. Uh, but I suspect this is going to soon change. Uh, but what about the stock market? It's down only 10% from its pre-corona highs, despite massive unemployment and despite looming bankruptcies. Well, it seems disconnected to the pain and the misery on Main Street, that's for sure. Uh, In February of this year, I predicted in an article in the SustainableCentury.net that we'd see a dead cat bounce, or rather a dead stuffed cat bounce. I like cats too much. Uh, Anyways, around early June, if the pandemic continued, the dead stuffed cat bounce uh, is, well, it's when a presumed floor to the stock market is found and then returns sort of jump upwards without a lot of momentum or much enthusiasm and only to fall back relatively rapidly, uh, normally within a week or two, uh, sometimes faster. Now, my prediction was predicated on the continued ineptness and incompetence of the Trump administration's management of the pandemic. And I really, I really wish that had been more difficult uh, a prediction to make. Well, anyways, will the market tank in June or sometime thereafter? Well, I don't know. uh, And neither do many of the other folks that I follow who follow the market much more closely than I do. But it does seem to be softening. Uh, Some predict a tsunami of bankruptcies will soon land on U.S. and European shores, uh, and that's going to affect the markets, the stock markets, that's for sure. But it's not corporate bankruptcies we should be worried about, either on moral or economic grounds. I say shame on all the big companies that spent their wicked tax windfalls from the last great tax grab passed by the Trump administration in 2017 and they spent it all on share buybacks now they got no cash now besides they are hogging over 70 percent of the care act in the u.s anyways care act pandemic support funding uh small businesses are just not getting their fair share and besides it's personal bankruptcies we need to care for and for the misery and the pain that they will cause and of course uh, we must also pay attention to the inevitable knock-on effects personal bankruptcies will have in the financial system particularly uh, credit card companies and financial institutions holding massive amounts of mortgages don't get me wrong i love a well-managed financial institution just like everybody else should But just as we had no idea of the complicated risk, hedging, margin, betting, derivatives, spaghetti mess lurking in the so-called financial assets of large financial institutions prior to the 2008 economic meltdown, I doubt we know the full risk most financial institutions are currently facing or will face as personal financial situations deteriorate 
uh, and small business uh, situations deteriorate and people simply cannot pay their mortgage or their rent. And I guess that's when we get to really see firsthand the financial risk stress test. Secretary Mnuchin and co have been so anxious for financial institutions to actually avoid. Now we're facing what I call uh, the bully teeter-totter economy. Uh, you know, the type where the big fat bully sits on one end of the teeter-totter and the skinny, scared, nerdy geek on the other. Well, imagine as real rates of interest keep going lower, uh, those who manage to scrape through the pandemic with some cash and assets that they can borrow against, well, they're simply going to borrow more money. Uh, and they're going to grab up all the assets worth taking. Now, I'm no communist or socialist. Okay, maybe a bit of a socialist. But Marx called it right when he called concentration of capital. For one thing, we know that a good capitalist will never let a crisis go to waste. What's that old saying? The best time to buy real estate is when there is blood in the streets. To wit... Many might remember that except for Bear Stern and Lehman Brothers, big banks, particularly investment banks, came out pretty well from the 2008 financial crisis and have subsequently grown a lot bigger. I mean, a lot bigger. Uh, the tech giants are they're not doing too bad in this pandemic either. And they're going to get a lot bigger. I mean, working from home on virtual stuff, uh, that kind of fits their business model. So what does this mean for the economy more generally? Well, it means fewer, bigger, and much bigger companies holding immense, even more immense pre than pre-pandemic volumes of assets on one end of the teeter-totter with a whole lot of people with very few assets, much fewer than pre-pandemic volumes on the other end. One might plausibly stretch this analogy uh, to the scales of justice, but that might just be a little too political for a simple sustainability podcast now wouldn't it but i digress i guess we could have predicted some things like the growing incremental chaos and dysfunction emerging in the the food system I mean, let's look at it hunger is growing food bank lines are massive and getting longer yet supermarket shelves seem to be fairly fully stocked even while farmers are plowing incredible amounts of food into the ground and slaughtering animals all for what lack of a market. Now, smarter people than me are working on this conundrum, but I have a couple of questions. Does it seem logical to you that if most people are still eating and eating fairly well, I know there's hunger out there, I know there's problems in some houses, and I feel for people, but why does so much food need to be destroyed? To me, that suggests massive overproduction in the food system, which is an enormous strain on the environment, but uh, I guess it's not really a surprise given that uh, apparently 30% of food is lost in waste through the supply food chain, thrown out, not, never eaten. Now, if that doesn't focus your attention on restaurants as the main culprit for food waste, I don't know where else to look. The, now, the other thing that confuses me is that when you look at the cars lined up at the food banks, it's not like you see all beat up cars. In one overhead picture I saw of a food bank lineup in Dallas or Houston, I can't remember which, at least 10% of them were Mercedes-Benz and BMWs. Again, the questions abound. Uh, one might plausibly make the observation that the reason many folks don't have $400 to put against 
an emergency situation is because they buy cars on payment plans beyond their budgets. Not to mention houses. But less facetiously, this may be symbolic of overconsumption in its most dramatic and, frankly, saddening form. If you want to learn more about food system chaos, check out usrighttoknow.org, uh, which tracks sustainability issues in the food system from food-related diseases, risk to farm workers, food supply and security issues, and just how bad factory farms can be, particularly in pandemics like coronavirus. Just go to usatrk.org. Another place you might want to check out is there was a great article in Triple Pundit, triplepundit.com, on small farms not being able, uh, like small businesses, to access the uh, CARE pandemic uh, support fund uh, from the federal government. Well, uh, shifting gears, there's a, a lot of talk about what happens after the pandemic fades, and it will. Although it seems less clear when that's going to happen uh, now than it did even just a couple weeks ago. I've, I've been predicting a vaccine by September, but uh, I've stopped doing that because I'd really rather not sound like President Trump. Uh, it, it, if you do follow it closely, however, you can see some glimmers of light, particularly in the fast track of treatments uh, for coronavirus, making it a little bit easier to survive. Uh, which is great, and, and even faster tracking of research for the vaccine itself that everybody's up there looking for. And I just want to give a great big shout out to all the scientists, all the scientists doing their thing. We love you all. We love science. Don't let anybody tell you different. Well, back to after the, the pandemic. Now, I'm not offering a, a synopsis or analysis yet of the different views as to what as to what might happen to after the pandemic, to the economy, that is. I mean, you can check out an article I wrote a few weeks ago in the sustainablecentury.net, and it was called The Big Fix and the Probability of a Green Recovery. Now, like many of my opinions, uh, I was a bit cynical, as the bulk of the national recovery plans make little or no accommodation uh, for linking financial support to businesses becoming more sustainable or more green. There's a great chart in my article that shows less than 10% of all funding to help get people and businesses through the pandemic are going to sustainable enterprise. And in fact, we see much loosening of environmental regulations as we do, as we see for hope in strengthening them, particularly in the United States at the federal level, but in other jurisdictions as well, like in Alberta, in Canada, for example. Uh, in some other jurisdictions, the European Union, France, Netherlands, amongst others, are putting in some green conditions on bailout support. But again, uh, they're fairly limited, and they face enormous corporate lobby pressure to the opposite effect. But not all of corporate America or corporate leaders from around the world are opposed to a green recovery. A uh, number of companies with the leadership and support of critical NGOs, particularly Ceres in the United States, Series is a sustainability nonprofit working with investors and corporations. Anyways, they have marshaled over 250 institutional investors and major corporations, including Danone, Dow, General Mills, IKEA, Mars, Microsoft, Nike, and Visa, to call upon the U.S. government to use its fiscal stimulus to prioritize a climate smart recovery and to help avoid future pandemics, uh, which are almost certainly linked to climate change and biodiversity loss. 
Uh, specifically, they want a build back better strategy centered around a clean energy economy. Now, I'm not so sure how influential this group is going to be, but it's a great effort. Uh, but we've seen initiatives like this come and go before. I personally am hoping for the very best of outcomes. And you can learn more about this effort at Ceres. That's C-E-R-E-S dot org. Uh, there you'll find a bunch of other information on really good investment and corporate sustainability activities. Well, in some other good news this week in sustainability, ExxonMobil, the poster boy for all that is bad in the world of fossil fuels and climate denial, or well, is there anything good about fossil fuels? Anyways, uh, ExxonMobil is facing something of a shareholder revolt over its poor climate change performance. Imagine that. Some of its largest shareholders, including the UK's biggest asset manager, Legal and General Investment Management, uh, which manages about $1.5 trillion in assets. It wants the Texas-based company to disclose its climate change lobbying activities. Now, my question, why is this company still such a dinosaur even compared to other oil and gas firms? All right, let's move away from that last bit of nasty. Now, last week I presented uh, part one of Memo to a Dying Species and Homo sapiens secret code to survival. If you had tuned into the podcast this week in sustainability, you may recall the story involves a mysterious older woman in a steamy cocktail dress, a culling of the herd, and the revealing of Homo sapiens key to survival, which might also be its greatest Achilles heel. If you want to read or hear part two, or if you missed part one, go to the sustainablecentury.net and you can check it out. And now here's a part two of Memo to a Dying Species and Homo Sapiens Secret Code to Survival. I'll start with the last paragraph of part one just to catch you up. Uh, each year, Homo Sapiens use more resources than are regenerated by nature by a factor of four. No other species comes close to this level of exploitation and related destruction even in local habitats. And nature's uh, global carrying capacity is in severe and massive disequilibrium. And we wonder why nature is responding with climate change and coronaviruses. Homo sapiens procreative uh, success has been unparalleled in the history of the earth. And it's fair to say we have waged a hitherto mostly successful war against nature. Having extended our life expectancy well beyond the 45 to 50 years or so we were originally dealt, uh, in most parts of the world, the average human will spend about 80 years walking on the planet uh, when it used to be as our teeth began to fail, uh, our dying would begin. Now, part of the success or part of our success is that we have a highly, perhaps too highly developed sense of awareness. And sadly, uh, we are, see ourselves as distinct or somehow above the teeming masses of all other not so self-possessed species. Uh, we love ourselves so much, too much, that we wish more than anything else than to defy nature's own rules. Anyone that tells you differently has never been seriously tested with their life or those of another, someone they love. 
Very few, even those suffering terrible illnesses, wish for death. I cannot recall a single instance, Lieutenant Governor Dan Rambo from Texas notwithstanding, of people volunteering themselves or others to hit the ice float just to extend the life of the group a little longer. The hardwired protect all life at all cost ethos is what makes Homo sapiens what they are and, in some respect, strong as a species. But it's also an Achilles heel in terms of survivability. There are too many of us on the planet and, as a result of our success at survival, we are slowly grinding myriad habitats and other species literally to a dusty extinction even though we need them, species and ecosystems, for our own health and welfare. There are many folks now claiming with some credibility that climate change and the degeneration of biodiversity is exposing Homo sapiens to viruses and diseases we were never meant to be exposed to. Deep in the beating hearts and lungs of the African, Asian, and South American jungles lurk terrible viruses vital to their ecosystems but deadly to human beings. Among them are millions of animal-borne coronaviruses. Yet we continue to sanitize and desertify our soils, poison our waters and waterways, and clot our atmosphere with grit, grime, and toxins. In our rigor to combat nature, we are managing to extinguish four to five species a day in the name of progress, in the name of a growing GDP. These are species and ecosystems we depend on, even if we can't see, enumerate, or even conceive of most of them. And you want to know how arrogant this is, ruining the very systems we need to survive, thinking it will all be okay? Well, just try living in your bathroom for a month with a single tub of water and no garbage disposal, consuming the way you would normally, and see how that works out. Nature will not stand for our hubris, in fact. Nature has never allowed for it. Yet nature is not mad, nor determined, nor scared. Nature simply finds balance. Its operating system is perfectly and ruthlessly calibrated to balance, not hegemony. Integration, not separation. Uh, these are nature's dictums. We are, quite bluntly, consuming ourselves to death. If you are a complete and true environmentalist, you have no fear. You know that long after we are gone, nature will continue. It will neither miss a beat nor say a eulogy for our passing. For among all nature's species, the life is precious above all others. Credo is ours alone. Is it wrong then to believe all life is precious? Was the UK's initial response to the coronavirus, the call the herd strategy, a more effective approach to survivability? Maybe. But I wonder what Boris Johnson is thinking now that he's survived coronavirus. Then again, thinking adaptation is an either-or, on-off, black-or-white proposition is to misunderstand the very nature of human adaptability, and it underappreciates our capacity to redraw the lines of what is possible. If we start with the premise that all lives are precious and that we will do most anything to save and extend life, we must be honest about what that means in terms of our relationship with nature understanding nature's ruthless demand for balance. If we want to survive and flourish as a species, we must be humble. 
Nature must be at the center of our belief system, recognizing that working against nature is simply a no-win proposition. It costs too much energy, too much sorrow, and ultimately, if we don't change course, we're going to lose anyways. To the thoughtful homo sapiens, and, and there are many, the dichotomy of health over economic well-being is trite and false. Framing the debate in this way is incredibly lazy and intellectually odious, not to mention head in the sandism to the extreme. It is no way to confront a crisis, that's for sure, climate or coronavirus. The short-termism embedded in the many political plans to overcome these two existential crises are largely based on fear and reflexive sentiment over the wisdom of an ecological path. Uh, aiming for simple recovery is to aim far too low. We need a new way to live. Our fear of loss of what we know and the currents of what we have achieved, quote and unquote, is deep, wide, and strong. Most homo sapiens simply cannot conceive of a faith in nature, or perhaps better put, a natural faith, which would demand, at the least, a radical deconstruction of the commercially based life we know. It is either 11.59 p.m. or 12.01 a.m. We can still choose between the end or a new beginning. But know this, incremental change on the fringes of our lifestyles simply will not cut it. There was a time, it may have been true long ago, before we bet on fossil fuels as our best source of energy perhaps, but not now. Do Homo sapiens have the intellectual and metaphysical savvy to do more than simply ache for a return to pre-corona life? Most likely not. People are living in fear, and rightly so, asking us to fundamentally change our relationship with one another and nature during a pandemic is just probably more than our prefrontal cortexes can withstand. We are, or at least we feel like we are, stuck in that garbage-filled bathroom all alone. Uh, fortunately, everyone does not agree or feel that way. The Extinction Rebellion, for example, says that to change the herd's mind about the existential threat of climate change and biodiversity loss, we need only convince about 4% of its members. Thus, while the pandemic crisis is a horrible tragedy in the annals of Homo sapiens, it provides a once-in-a-species lifespan opportunity for course correction about living within the dictates of human nature and to stop our useless, unwinnable war against it. I assume, of course, that more than 4% of Americans and folks from other countries around the world get that coronavirus is analogous to the growing number of violent climate events, if not symptomatic of climate change itself. Now, prior to the pandemic, I saw cautious hope in four trends and one observation which bode well for reversing our declines as a species while protecting all life, not just our own, as precious. The first is declining dependence on fossil fuels and the emergence of clean energy sources. In addition to providing an exploitable economic opportunity in the energy sector, switching to clean power has an incredible knock-on effect and potentially positive disruptive effects in other parts of the economy from electric cars, batteries, to ending the harmful monopoly of big utilities. The second trend is the desire amongst an increasingly larger portion of the population 
to address critical biodiversity loss. This is not yet the burning issue it needs to be, but thanks to movements like the Extinction Rebellion, it has a future. Uh, the third is a growing movement around the world demanding economic, social, and political equality. Redistribution of resources that lead to greater food security, dignified housing, personal safety, and welfare. Access to culture and social resources is fundamental to relaxing our massive scarcity reflex and to developing a new way to live, one that celebrates less things and more time to simply live simply. Fourth, there are signs that fertility rates are slowing for multiple purposes, including rising incomes in developing countries, declining hegemony of the nuclear family, depressed interest in sex amongst younger people, and purpose-driven lifestyles, amongst many others. It's time to slow down our population growth. If you don't know how, refer back to point three above. Finally, an observation. Many people trapped in their homes on coronavirus lockdown for weeks now are coming to realize the imbalance of pre-COVID-19 life and that a new lifestyle ethos could emerge from the crisis, one that favors time to do the things we love with the ones we love over our perverse, greater than full-time pursuit of money and things. Homo sapiens have enormous physical, metaphysical, and spiritual challenges ahead. The only outcome that counts, however, will be a redefinition of what constitutes an acceptable lifestyle, one that satisfies our moral codes and works within the dictates of nature. Simply put, this is the crucible of whatever time we have left on this planet. The single biggest challenge? To choose peace with nature and amongst our riven selves, ensuring all life is precious all of the time, not only in moments of crises. Everything else is just nibbling at the edge of a disaster. Oh, and by the way, the woman at the bar, the one I mentioned earlier, I caught up with her at the door as she was leaving. I tapped her on the shoulders. I just had to ask, what did you whisper that we didn't hear when you were leaving? She smiled as if retasting the last sharp drop liquor from her cocktail in reply. Choose well. If you've not signed up for our weekly content updates, uh, you can do so at the sustainablecentury.net. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment or hit like. Better yet, pass the article, pod, or video along. And if you haven't already checked out a new video by our producer, young Mateos de Souza Shields, that's right, that's my boy, on why you should garden and not just in times of coronavirus, you can do so at the Sustainable century.net check it out it's a great one uh well that's all for now uh, i'm mark d'souza shields host of this week in sustainability uh thanks for listening and remember it's up to you it's up to me it's up to us to make this a happier healthier more sustainable world.